Well, welcome to you all again in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you could turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, we do thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for the heart that you have given us, this work of your Spirit, changing our heart to give us a love for your word. Lord, a love for the law of God, a love for righteousness, a hunger and a thirst for what is right before you, a desire to walk in a manner pleasing to you that honors you in every aspect of our lives. To be able to obey the Word of God, by the power of your Spirit within us. What a joy that is, Lord. Though we are weak, and though, Lord, we are not perfect people, yet we are a changed people. The direction of our life has been completely altered. And we have a power residing within us now that we did not have before the ability to walk in righteousness, to walk as Jesus walked, to obey you, to be holy as your word exhorts us because you are holy, obedient children who are not conformed to the lusts which were ours in our former manner of life. We're a new people, Lord. And out of that heart's desire, we come to you this morning to open up the Word of God. Lord, the desire of our heart is not only to know it in the mind, 
in an intellectual way. And there is that aspect, Lord, to know doctrine, to know truth, to have a mind renewed. But Father, to have your word deeply embedded in the heart, drawing us to you, to be a people conformed, who are sanctified, Lord, by you in the truth of your word, to keep your commandments, to walk in obedience as your children. Well, that is the desire of our heart. We ask that you would meet us, that you would deepen our walk, that you would deepen our understanding of the word of God, that you would deliver us from all error, from the work of the enemy, Lord, to seek to deceive, to blind, to distort the truth in our mind and heart. Oh, Lord, we pray you would rout that work and that you would make us a people who know your word and who are true to it, fully committed to it, to be like your son, Lord. That is the desire of our heart. And that is what is the potential of our lives. Because that is the miracle you have wrought in us. You have joined us to the Lord Jesus so that we walk in the power of his resurrection life. In newness of life. A new life. So Lord, meet us in the desire of our heart to be your people. To be men and women of God who are led, who are filled, who are anointed, who are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to be holy, obedient, righteous, loving, who live for the glory of God and who do the will of God. So, Lord, we commit our hearts to you in this time to you. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you for the desires of your heart towards us. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do in this hour. So we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to our study in the Word of God this morning. We come to the Gospel of Mark that we have begun this study a few weeks ago as we're going to go systematically through it. We come this morning to this section in chapter 1 dealing with the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Having introduced us to John the Baptist as the prophesied forerunner and herald of the Messiah, Mark now introduces us to the person of the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Suddenly, like John the Baptist, after years of living in obscurity, having grown up in the Galilean town of Nazareth and then becoming a carpenter, like Joseph, his father before him, Jesus just appears. Just all of a sudden, here he is on the scene. And it's interesting to note that the the two incidents that Mark records that inaugurate the ministry of Jesus, the incidents themselves are not ministry per se, but they are important events that are immediately preparatory for his public ministry. The first is Jesus' baptism. And the second is his personal confrontation with Satan and his temptation in the wilderness. Both of these events are highly significant. Both occur at the very beginning of his ministry. 
before he actually engages in ministry in a public way. And they are extremely important in what they reveal to us about the essence of Jesus' calling and purpose. And in that regard, we need to put Mark's gospel and his history of Jesus in a broader context and perspective. Behind this gospel and the life of Jesus is the reality of the true and the living God. That is what we also pointed out about the Pentateuch. When we made that study of the Pentateuch, the transcendent truth behind the Pentateuch is the reality of the being, the person, and the character of God. That is the context of this gospel. What's behind it? The reality of the living God. The gospel of Mark, there's a reason Jesus came into human history, a reason he was born. He is a man sent by God to fulfill a divine cosmic purpose. The context of this gospel is the reality of God, and then subordinate to that, we have the reality of man and the reality of sin, the reality of Satan, the reality of eternity, and the judgment of God to come, and the ultimate reality of heaven and hell. These events that Mark records here of Jesus' baptism and this temptation in the wilderness each embody the reminder of this broader context and the spiritual truths and realities that govern this world and this universe. The fact that what Jesus and his ministry represent is a cosmic spiritual warfare that deals with the most profound issues of life for all of us from men and women throughout the entirety of this world. And so this morning we want to consider this first event recorded for us here by Mark, the baptism of Jesus. So if you could turn with me again to Mark 1, starting with verse 9. It came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Now if you would turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Again, an account given by Matthew of the baptism of Jesus, beginning with verse 13, but we're given here a little more detail about the event. Matthew 3, verse 13, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and 
lighting upon him, and behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this passage can be divided into three main headings. There is the baptism of Jesus, then there is the anointing by him, by the Spirit of God, and then we have the affirmation and confirmation of the Father speaking from heaven. We have the consecration of the Son, the giving of the Spirit, and the witness of the Father. We have here the Trinity working in harmony for a common purpose, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what is revealed in this account is the setting apart and anointing of the Messiah for the ministry to which he is called. And we can, we can see that by a surface reading of the text. But we need to also understand the spiritual truths represented by this event and each of these three main categories. Why did Jesus come for baptism by John? What is the significance of it? What does it mean that the Holy Spirit descended upon him? What is the real meaning of that, and does that have any application to us as believers and followers of Jesus? And then, what is the significance spiritually of the witness of the Father to the Son? What does any of this have to do with you and me? This baptism is a very significant event. It is the first act of Jesus' public ministry. And that fact alone should cause us to ponder why. Why does his ministry begin this way? Jesus' first public act is not to perform a dramatic miracle. A supernatural event does accompany the baptism, but it is not something Jesus initiates himself. His first public act was not to preach or teach. His first public act was to submit to the rite of John's baptism. And so we need to stand back and ask why. What is the significance of this baptism? What does it teach us? What did Jesus, why did Jesus begin his ministry in this way? Well, the first thing we need to do is deal with definitively with what it doesn't mean. <laughs> As we have seen, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, the confession of sin. Men came to John to confess their sins, to repent, and to receive baptism as a sign of forgiveness and cleansing, and as a commitment to live a life of obedience to the Lord to deal with sin in a definitive way in their lives. It was the means of preparing men's hearts for the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And see, and that, that's the truth we underscored when we were looking at the ministry of John, John the man, John the, the man called by God to be a prophet of God, his message Preparing men to receive the Messiah. For anybody to receive this King, this Messiah, this Savior requires a dealing with sin. 
repentance. And that's what the call of John is all about here. John's baptism was a call for men to turn from sin, fully commit their hearts to the Lord. It was a call to true conversion. That is one thing Jesus did not need on a personal level. On a personal level, he is sinless. He has no need for repentance from sin. And John knows that. That's why he's taken aback when Jesus approaches him for baptism and he objects and tries to prevent him from doing it. He says, oh, no, no, no. Let's reverse this. <laughs> you baptized me. I need to be baptized by you. You don't come to me. What is this? Matthew 3, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And we've seen John the Baptist knew Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. His mother Elizabeth knew Mary had conceived the Messiah, who she referred to as my Lord when she addressed Mary, and she undoubtedly conveyed that truth to her son. The Messiah is coming. Mary is bearing the Messiah, the Son of God. So the last thing John expects is for the Son of God to come to him for baptism, and his statement to Jesus expresses both his astonishment and his humility. And he keeps trying to prevent Jesus from being baptized. That, that, this isn't right. I have need to be baptized by you. I'm a sinner in need of baptism. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the Lord of Lords. This is not right. <laughs> and in one sense, he's right. But in another sense, Jesus says, no, it's necessary. Jesus did not need to be baptized because of sin. Scripture clearly teaches Jesus is sinless. He has no need of repentance. The testimony of the Father here in verse 17 intimates that as such, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' life was pleasing to God because He was a righteous man, a perfect man, a sinless man. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. No sin in Jesus. Hebrews 7.26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, Exalted above the heavens. First Peter 2.22, quoting Isaiah 50, 53, He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. In Him there is no sin, John says in 1 John chapter 3. And Jesus Himself declares His own sinlessness when He challenges the Jews in John 8, Which one of you convicts me of sin? Jesus is a sinless man. So then the question obviously is raised, why then did he come to John to submit to a baptism that called for repentance from and confession of sin? 
and which spoke of cleansing from sin and conversion. Jesus reveals his reason when he responds there to John in, in Matthew 3, as it's recorded for us, permitted at this time, for in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So it is in order to fulfill all righteousness that it is necessary for Jesus to submit to baptism. It's because in this act, Jesus is declaring his commitment to fully embrace the will of God. It is the will of God that he be baptized and that he fully embrace all that this baptism signifies. It has a significance for Jesus that it does not have for others in terms of personal application. It has special application to him as the Messiah. And that application has two major aspects to it. There's the aspect, first of all, of identification, and then secondly, of consecration. The baptism of Jesus is the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus as a Messiah. It's a public declaration and confirmation of his calling. And that calling as a Messiah was to a ministry of saving men and women from their sin. He is called to be the Savior of the world, as John the Baptist declared, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He comes to take upon himself man's sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of the human race. He comes to fully embrace man in the depths of his darkness and captivity and depravity, of his helpless and hopeless state under the dominion and tyranny of Satan in spiritual death and bondage. A slavery. We're slaves. We are slaves to the world. We are slaves to Satan. We are slaves to sin. Bound. It's a bondage, a captivity, which then leads to an eternal state in hell under the judgment of God. A state of being. It's real. And it never ends. Nothing could be more terrifying. Nothing. If you think it, it, we don't like to think about it. We don't like to even think about death, much less eternity. But you ought to go sometime and just sit down on your couch and try to think about eternity. Let it, let it sort of, yeah, I mean, it's impossible to get your arms fully around what it means, but you can surely understand certain aspects we can of what it means. Just think about the fact it never ends. 100 years, no, no end. 1,000 years, no end. 10,000 years, no end. There's no end. It goes on and on. And think about hell. No end. That's what Jesus is looking at when he comes into this world. He's looking at us in that state of being, in our sin. I am so thankful for the Son of God. I'm thankful for the Lord. 
He came into this world that he might become a redeemer and a deliverer of man from that captivity, that bondage, that eternal state. One of the prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah 42 reveals to us God's purpose in sending him that will be accomplished through him. God's heart of love for sinful men who exist in that state of bondage to set them free. God prophesies of the Messiah in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the peoples, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That's what we are apart from Jesus. We are captive in a dungeon, a prison of sin, held there by Satan. What is Jesus? He is a deliverer a rescuer, a savior, a redeemer from spiritual death, the guilt of sin, eternal hell, spiritual blindness, darkness, captivity, prison, the dungeon of Satan. The whole calling of the Messiah is in the context of this reality of fallen man's spiritual state and the reality of sin and its consequences. And it is a cosmic conflict with Satan. The ultimate battle between good and evil. And he wins. The Lord wins in the end. It is, though, a warfare. And that's what we see in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. This is a warfare. And our lives, if we follow him, going to be a warfare because that same spirit of darkness that opposed him opposes us because God's purposes are still the same to invade that kingdom and to set captives free that's why Jesus came so that's the whole context when we study this gospel behind it all are these realities this person who is God, the creator, becoming man, coming into human history to invade the kingdom of Satan, to battle for the souls of men. We're talking about eternity for men and women. We stand here today if we know Christ, a people who have been liberated, set free forever to be his. We don't fear death. We don't fear judgment. We don't fear hell. We know where we're going, but only, only because of Jesus, not because of us. But these realities, they're beyond sobering. And that's why the Word of God is given, to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, so we understand what is life all about? What is the purpose of life? And the whole purpose of life is to know God, our Creator. How can I know Him? That's what Jesus is all about. The Bible, the Bible, as I've said, can be simply put this way. Why is it given? To tell us God is, to reveal who He is, to show us how to know Him, and then how to live. That's the Bible. It's a revelation of God 
to open our eyes to truth, to bring light into our darkened minds, to understand the ultimate issues of all of life. How can I know God? And how can I live in a way that is right in his eyes? The great need of man in his helpless bondage and captivity is to be rescued and reconciled to God and restored to a relationship with his creator. And behind all of this is the love of God who desires the salvation of men and women. The love of God, the heart of God, pursuing sinners. The only reason I'm standing here today, and if you know Christ, the only reason you're here today is because God pursued you and he brought you to himself. The heart of God, his love for us. So the baptism of Jesus is a declaration of his willingness to become identified with men and their sin. His heart is one of sympathy, compassion, love. And what's motivating him to this identification is a heart of incredible love, a pity for our helpless and our hopeless circumstance because we can't do anything about it. We're dead. (laughs) We are dead people in sin. Dead in sin, we are blind, we cannot hear, we have hearts of stone, insensitive to God, dead to God, very much alive to sin and Satan and the world. But God, and I love that, but God, God intervenes, and because God is sovereign, because God is omnipotent, He's able to raise the dead to newness of life. And that's what he does through his son. John's baptism speaks of the need for cleansing from sin and a new life. And so in his identification with that baptism, Jesus is identifying with men and their need as the one who as a Messiah is the answer to that need. As one who cleanses from sin and as one who gives new life delivering from the bondage and the state of sin so that we become a new creation. And his incarnation, Jesus identifies with us in our humanity. He becomes man, one of us. And that's an identification he will maintain for all eternity. The living God became man and he will now be a man forever. In his identification with you and me, he did that out of love for us. In that humanity, he comes to service. He gives himself to the point of washing feet, washing the feet of his creation. He identifies with our weaknesses and sympathy as our high priest, and he calls us to find in him one who is ready and willing to meet us in every area of our need. He has identified with our struggles. He knows the difficulties, the heartaches, the pain, the suffering, the intensity of the battle. The warfare, the animosity, the cruelty of the enemy. And he identifies with us in sympathy. He knows us. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He knows. And he knows our weakness. Praise God we have one who overcame, who never sinned. And it's his power that enables us to walk in victory. 
in, in, in our day-to-day life. It says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is there for us. And as we trust him and look to him and pray, he meets us with his power, his strength. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in him, abiding in him, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is part of his ministry as a Messiah. It's partially what his public baptism testifies to, his identification out of compassion and love with lost sinners as one who will identify with them in this world of sin and become one who can sympathize with them. And then finally, of course, the baptism speaks of Jesus' ultimate identification with sinful men and becoming the sin bearer. He's wholly identifying himself with our sin that he might deliver us from that sin. He fully embraces our sin. He lays down his life as a just payment for that sin. He makes atonement to satisfy the holiness of God that he might save men from the power, bondage, and eternal consequences of sin and bondage to Satan. He is sinless, but he identifies with us in our sin by representing us in our humanity before the holy God of this universe to have our sin imputed to him by God and then to bear the full brunt of the wrath and judgment of God against that sin for us so that we might be set free from that judgment. The curse of the law and death where that curse is experienced in a final way, the curse of the law of God, eternal death. That's hell for all eternity. He is our rescuer, our deliverer, our redeemer in our helplessness and our bondage. He does what we cannot do. The law of God has two basic requirements. Perfect obedience to be accepted by God. Perfect obedience. No sin. Good luck. You need perfect righteousness to get to heaven. If you sin... You transgress the law of God, it's a curse. You're condemned to die. And that death is eternal. Well, we've blown it. We're sinners. What's our hope? Law of God says, nope, you're not perfect. Done. It's over. Well, apart from Jesus, it is. I'm hopeless. I have no hope. Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly. He never sinned. He's sinless. Then he went to the cross as our substitute, as a man, to represent us before a holy God, to bear the penalty of the law. He did that for us. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus in every aspect, positive and negative. So in him, when we come to him, What he has done is given to us as a gift. The perfect life he lived is imputed to you and me. Our sin is imputed to him. And then he pays that penalty. The judgment of God is exhausted 
in that sacrifice that he made, and now we receive the benefit of that death that he died for us so that we don't die. We die physically, but that's just an open door to glory. There's no curse anymore. It's gone. That's what Jesus did as a man, identifying with us in our humanity, in our sin. So the baptism then of Jesus is representative of Jesus and his calling for the purpose of his becoming man to be our representative before God, our Savior, our Deliverer, and the head eternally of a new humanity. What Adam was and failed to do to be the head of the human race, he's fallen. God establishes again in Jesus as the head of new humanity. He's the second Adam, the last man. He's the head. And in him, we become a new humanity. For all eternity, the people of God. Jesus purpose. There are all kinds of purpose statements throughout the New Testament, both by him and by the writers of the New Testament for why the Son of God came into this world. Jesus himself says in Mark 10, the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is my purpose. I wasn't just born. I came into the world for a purpose. I'm invading this world to accomplish a cosmic divine purpose. I'm going to give my life a ransom for many. Hebrews 12, 14 to 17, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He becomes a man for a purpose, to deliver us from the devil, from death and the fear of death. And we should fear death. If we do not know Christ, we should greatly fear death because that is an open door to eternity separated from God. That you don't want to ever experience. That's why we have a gospel. That's why we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 Timothy 1, 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Jesus as he stood before Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus says, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Purpose. He's not just a random guy who's just sort of born. <laughs> but that's true of all men. We're not just random. We're created by God. But in particular, this one is created as the most unique person ever born. He is God and man, the Messiah. 
The purpose of Jesus becoming man reflected in the spiritual meaning of his baptism. And that speaks to us so wondrously then of his heart and the love of God. For Jesus is sent by the Father, by God. He is doing the will of the Father and identifying with us what is. And that, what that tells us then is that God is for us. His heart is for us. He loves us. So what kind of love is it that you would so identify with the sinful, with sin as God? He's God. He's identifying with sinful, finite men. Willing to become a man forever. And in becoming man to fully embrace our sin, to become identified with that sin so that he can set these miserable, rebellious enemies free and grant them forgiveness and eternal life. What wondrous love, oh my soul. What wondrous love is this. Great hymn. And truly, if we understand our sin, if we understand what it means, what we deserve, and what God has done is stunning. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. Well, that brings us to the second major aspect of the meaning of Jesus' baptism, consecration. The first major point is identification. The second is consecration. And in his baptism, Jesus is consecrating his life to the fulfillment of the will of God as a Messiah to the full embracing of all that that identification with man in his sin will mean in becoming the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice for sin, to take away the sin of the world. In this baptism of identification, Jesus is committing himself to the embracing of a baptism of fire. This baptism represents the laying down of his life. But the baptism is a demonstration that in his heart, Jesus has already laid down his life. His life is a life laid down for the glory of God, for the sake of others. And that's what our baptism is meant to signify for us as well. Baptism, Jesus commands it. You have committed to me, publicly declare it. What does it mean? My life is no longer my own. My life has been cleansed of sin. My life is now consecrated to the Lord. And I am here for His purposes to be fulfilled in and through my life. I have been cleansed of sin and I've been raised from the dead. I've been brought up out of that water, a new creation. The water doesn't do anything. The water is just representative of a truth already done by God. But it's a public witness, testimony to men that I belong now to the Lord. It's a consecrated life. Jesus has a calling as a Messiah, and John's baptism was not only a call to repentance and confession of sin, but to the bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance, which means a life of living for the will of God, a life of consecration to God. And so in his baptism, Jesus is publicly consecrating his life to the fulfilling of his calling as the Messiah. As he says in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
In Mark 10, 45 again, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is one with us. He is our brother. <laughs> He's a human being. He is one with us in our humanity, in his sympathy, in his love, in his commitment, in his sacrifice. There he is not just taking the sin of the world to himself. He is taking your sin. Personally, your personal, individual sin. My sin. He has me in his heart. He has you in his heart on that cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy, what's the joy set before him? having all of us with him in eternity, the fruit of his death, a saved people. That's mind-blowing. He's laying down his life for each one of us personally, and then he's being raised up for each one of us personally so that you personally, individually might know forgiveness, deliverance, a new life, cleansing, eternal life, reconciliation with God, to know God, to know Him as your Father. But we realize apart from this death, apart from what He alone can do, there is no salvation. We're, we're helpless. We, we cannot do anything. We're sinners. And there's only one thing that we can look forward to as sinners, Unless God does something, and that's what the law says. The soul that sins shall die. That's the law of God. And the terrible reality is, for those who are outside of Christ, that law will be effectual over them for eternity. Spiritual death. Eternal death. Baptism. Speaks to us here of the love, the identification, sympathy, compassion, commitment, and sacrifice of Jesus as our Messiah and High Priest. His full identification with us in our humanity and sin, that we might be baptized into Him and be fully identified with Him in His life, and all that that means of an eternal standing of acceptance with the living God and the experience of the fullness of salvation. So Jesus goes down into the water to be baptized by John. And then verse 10 of Mark 1 says, And immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. So here we have the anointing of the Messiah for the work and the ministry he's called to undertake. And here we have the pouring out of the Spirit of God on him to give him the power and the strength and the grace to fulfill the will of God in this calling. The Son of God consecrates Himself to the path and destiny. God has ordained for Him. And now the Holy Spirit comes upon Him as the one who will enable Him. For in His humanity, Jesus needed to be strengthened and empowered. He is a man. He does not rely upon His deity to, lead the life, to live the life that He lived. He's got to be empowered just like we do. John the Baptist tells us the Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. 
Well, prior to this point, Jesus had always been filled with the Spirit of God. He could not have lived a sinless life apart from being filled with the Spirit, but here he is being specially anointed from on high for the fulfilling of his purpose as a Messiah. Now that he's about to enter upon his public ministry. So this would be similar to what Jesus instructed the disciples just prior to Pentecost when they would embark upon their calling to fulfill the Great Commission and proclaim the kingdom of God throughout the world. Jesus said to them, you are to stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. In Acts 1, he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. That's the anointing of the Holy Spirit the spirit of power and life for the accomplishing of the will of God. And Jesus needed to be anointed with the Spirit, and this was in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy as so much of his life was. Luke 4, you might turn to Luke 4 if you would, verse 17. Here we're told Jesus went into the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth on a Sabbath. Early in his ministry, He reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he claims that that prophecy is fulfilled in him. Luke 4, verse 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the one Isaiah was speaking of. The characteristic of the life and ministry of Jesus is that he was a man filled and anointed by the Spirit of God. He was able to accomplish all that he did in his life because he was empowered, strengthened, anointed, and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Just as an aside, we need to note something about Jesus and his relationship to the Spirit of God. His filling and anointing, his experience of the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, And I think this is important because there is a false emphasis in our day. It was not evidenced by the speaking in tongues. Jesus did not speak in tongues. He knew the filling, the leading, the empowering of the Holy Spirit apart from speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit was given to Jesus to empower him to be a man of God a man of real holiness of life, and to fulfill the will of God and His calling. And that is true. That is the true evidence that one is indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit. It is conformity to the image and the example of Jesus. There are a lot of people who supposedly speak in tongues who claim the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life who are not in the least conformed to the image of Christ. And I'm sorry That is not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is given for one purpose, and that is to empower us as followers of Christ to be like Him, to walk as He walked, 
to be holy in all our behavior, to be men and women of God, and to be empowered to be able to do the ministry that God calls us to do. That's why the Spirit was given to Jesus, right? We look at the prophecy. What are you empowered to do? Preach the gospel to the poor, to be the instrument through the power of the Spirit to release captives by the proclamation of the Word of God. If somebody says, well, what about Acts? What about Pentecost? Well, the experience there of speaking in tongues had to do with a supernatural ability to speak human languages. Their languages, Spanish, French, English. It's not some unknown tongue that nobody understands. It's a language. These men heard the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel in their own language. It's an, it's an ability given by God, and it's temporary. It's a gift given to the apostles at that point in time. But it's a known language, and men understood it when they heard it. But Jesus did not speak in tongues, and he had the Holy Spirit. He knows the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's, this speaks to us because he is anointed by the Spirit of God for the purpose of being to us what is so desperately needed for us spiritually. We could never be for ourselves. It speaks to us of the heart and the love of God. Here we have the Spirit of God coming upon Jesus to enable him to fulfill his calling as a Messiah, to be identified with us in our sinful state that he might deliver us. He's sent by the Father, called and anointed by the Spirit for the fulfilling of this purpose. Behind all of this is the heart of love, the love of God for each one of us. Finally, Mark presents a third aspect of the baptism of Jesus, that is the confirmation, affirmation of the Father, the audible seal of his approval and witness to the truth that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the Messiah. A voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, and Thee I am well pleased. That voice would have been audible to everyone present. It's audible. It's God. The heavens part. The Spirit descends, and God speaks audibly. You are my Son, my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased two things noteworthy about this witness of the Father to Jesus apart from the basic reality of the witness itself. Two things declared about Jesus here by the Father. This is my beloved Son. In Him I'm well pleased. The first statement speaks to us about the depth of the love between the Father and the Son. Jesus is not just the Son of God. He's the beloved Son of God. A prophecy in Isaiah, the Messiah, again going back to Isaiah 42, speaks of the relationship between Yahweh and the Messiah. This is declared by the Messiah, of the Messiah, by, by Yahweh. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. So you read, you start in Isaiah 42, go all the way down to about verse 7. It's all about the Messiah. And it's amazing. 
because we find it all fulfilled here in the life of Jesus in just a minute detail. This is my son, my chosen one, my beloved, and I have put my spirit upon him. That I will, and I will make him a covenant to the peoples, a light to the nations, that he may open blind eyes, bring out prisoners from the dungeon, set the captives free. Second thing the Father says, in him I'm well pleased. So what does the Father mean by this? Well, first of all, it means the Father is pleased with the life Jesus had lived up to that point in time. That is highly significant because up to this point, Jesus... It's just been a regular guy working. He's in obscurity. Nobody knows who he is, which would be kind of weird, right? I mean, he's perfect. He's a perfect man. Well, that'd be great if you are going to him as a carpenter and you're going to watch the quality of work. It's going to be rather amazing work, honest work. He'll deal righteously with you. You imagine being in the family with him, growing up with him. It must have been really weird. I mean, your brother, your sister, he never throws a fit, never loses his temper. I mean, I, never says an off word to anybody. I mean, he's perfect. Cow. You know, your little brother who's perfect, you know, in your parents' eyes, and you just, oh. You just think about that. What would it have been like to grow up with Jesus in the same family? Infuriating. <laughs> oh, I think it would have been, I don't know, you don't want to say that. No, not infuriating. <laughs> the joy of Joyce. I mean, you're loved completely by him, right? It just... Interesting to think about. But up to this point in time, he's calling about the daily routine of living life, making a living in Nazareth, providing for his mother, probably for some of his other siblings, since Joseph has probably died. He's the oldest. So he bears that responsibility now for his mother. And I mean, it's really kind of neat that he lives a regular life like we all do. Nothing unusual, nothing outstanding until now. He's identified with us in every way in our humanity. He knows what it's like to work. He knows the frustrations of that work. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to have to be responsible to provide for someone else. He can identify with us. We can identify with him. He's a carpenter. A lowly carpenter. But he walked with God and he pleased God because he did the will of God in the routine of his life. So Jesus is a man of God who loved his Father with all his heart and who pleased God by walking in obedience to God and his behavior and in all his dealings with men. Ministry is a completely secondary issue with God. What is of supreme importance to him is our walk with him. Because again, what the example of both Jesus and John the Baptist illustrate for us is that it's a walk of holiness and righteousness, a personal obedience to the will of God in our daily walk and our relationship with God. That is what qualifies a person for ministry. Not a technical knowledge of the Word of God alone. 
I do need that knowledge. I need to know the Word of God. I need to know when I stand before people, I'm going to accurately tell them what the Word of God means. But if the light doesn't back it up, that's just useless. What matters most to the Lord is the foundation to all that ministry, and that's a righteous, godly life that bears fruit. And that will bear fruit in ministry. It's often said in ministry, we reproduce what we are, not what we say. Now, if what we are backs up what we say, there'll be power in the words that we're saying. God will use that. But what matters is my heart before God, my life before God. And it's only as we are faithful to God in our personal walk that we're going to be faithful to Him in ministry. If I'm not faithful in my personal walk, I'm going to fail in ministry some way. Finally, when the Father says He is well pleased with Jesus, He's also speaking about the commitment of the Son as represented in His baptism to embrace His calling as a Messiah to fulfill the will of God, to be the Savior of the world that men might be brought into the kingdom of God, reconciled to God, made the sons and daughters of God. So once again, what is revealed to us here is the heart and the love of God. Behind this sacrifice is the heart of a seeking God. God seeking the salvation of men and women, that in His Son they might be raised up to oneness with Him and to the same status of relationship It's that of the Lord Jesus himself. This is what blows me away. More than I just think about this and I go, how, man. The glorious and amazing, unbelievable reality is the very description the Father gives of Jesus here in Mark 1.11 is the same description that he gives of every child of his in Jesus Christ. He says Jesus is his beloved. That is the very term he uses of each of us in this room who know Him. The same relationship that, the relationship that Jesus has with His Father is the relationship that we have with the Father. It's the same. God's attitude towards His own Son, His beloved, is exactly the same towards you. If we really know Him, because we're in His Son. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of God to be His children forever. We are beloved of God. The whole point of the ministry of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Beloved One, is that He would be baptized in an identification with our sin that we might be baptized into Him and then be made one with Him and identified with Him in His life and in His standing before God, so that in the beloved one before God, we become the beloved of God. In the Son of God, we become the sons of God. In the righteous one, we stand eternally righteous and accepted by God, blameless. You will be presented before the throne of Almighty God, blameless by the Son. That's hard to believe. I know my sin. But it's true. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We realize, okay, we have become the righteousness of God here, but we still have the flesh in us. We're declared righteous by God. That means he views us, and we sang it a little while ago, his mercy is more. What kind of mercy is it that looks at my life and says, I can't see any sin? Because that's the reality of a true saint in Jesus. Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. They're gone. And so my standing before God in Christ is exactly the same standing as Jesus. And the day is coming. We're all going to be there together in eternity, in glory, and we're going to be glorified. And when we're glorified, we're going to be made like Jesus, and we will never sin again. We will truly then be blameless. But before the judgment of God, before the law of God, we're blameless. We've been set free because Jesus has done that for us. The Word of God doesn't leave us in any doubt as to what God's attitude is towards His children. It's the same attitude as His attitude towards Jesus. How He views Jesus is how He views us, with the same love, the same affection, the same delight. Are we perfect? No. Does He love us? Yes. Can His love for us improve? No. Can it diminish? No. It's perfect. It's not going to increase. It's not going to decrease. Any more than his love for Jesus can increase or decrease. His love for you, his love for me, is exactly the same. And we'll come into the fullness of the experience of what that means in eternity. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Brethren, our brothers there in Rome, just regular believers, beloved of God, just like Jesus. Romans 1, 7, or the Thessalonians, and then Romans 1, 7. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome. Every day, common believers call the beloved of God in Rome and Thessalonica. Same word use of Jesus in Mark 1, 11. The word beloved means simply to be greatly loved, to be dear to the heart. That means we're as dear to the heart of God as Jesus is as dear to the heart of God. Jesus himself in his prayer in John 17 makes the point that the love of God for those, of the love of God for those who follow him, he says it's the same as his love for Jesus. Jesus said, thou didst love them, my followers, even as thou didst love me. Equivalence. He says further that the same love that the Father has towards him, he has towards his true followers. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. That's stunning. <laughs> the love of God, I mean, it just stops you. It should bring tears to the eyes. To really believe this, to think through it, 
to think about what all this means, to think about our future, to think about where we're going, to think about what all God has planned for us, all that he has done for us, to, de to deliver us, to redeem us, to bring us to himself, to secure for us an eternity of glory, of a oneness with Jesus and him, where we're actually raised up to be the co-heirs of Jesus Christ. And we are conformed to the glorified state that Jesus will exist in as a man. I mean, if that doesn't make us fall to the ground and worship God and praise his name, nothing will. <laughs> but that's the end result of our salvation. This is why Jesus came. This is what his baptism means. He's embracing all of this for the ultimate end that will be his forever. This is the heart of our God and Father. He rejoices over his children with shouts of joy, with singing as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And in his baptism then, Jesus, in here we look at this baptism we find a pattern. It's a pattern revealed to us of the Christian life and what it is meant to be for us as the followers of Jesus. I mean, there are certain things here that are unique to Jesus, but there are certain spiritual principles that apply to all of us. It begins with a life consecrated, committed to the Lord and the will of God, and sacrificially laid down. My life isn't my own. It's been bought with a price. I am not here for me. I am here for my Lord. He has saved me for His glory, for His will, for His purposes. My life is consecrated to that end, just like Jesus. It's laid down for the glory of God and for the sake of men. And such a life is then to be lived in the power, the strength, the enabling, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And where there is this sincere consecration of heart and life, I will know the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to live for the glory of God. And that life then knows intimate communion with God and a knowledge of His love and walks in a consciousness of being one with the Father. This is the desire of God's heart for every one of us in this room, that we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled up to all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3. That's the ultimate purpose signified by the baptism of Jesus that as a Messiah, a work of salvation born out of the love of God would be accomplished, that through a spiritual baptism into the Messiah, men and women would become identified with Him. Just as He identified with us in our sin, we're identified with Him and His life and His righteousness. And then we'd be brought into oneness with God, to know God and the experience of His love and His grace and His power to live a life that is supernatural, just like Jesus, where we are conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. That's what the baptism represents. Came about in those days 
that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. We need to, we need to realize, right, all of these wonderful truths. What that baptism represents is a life completely set apart to God, consecrated to God. We need to ask ourselves, is that my life? Is this, am I like Christ? What do I live for? Who do I live for? Do, do I reflect this reality in my life? Do I know this kind of commitment to my God? Am I filled with the Spirit, led of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit of God to obey God, to be a man or a woman of God? Do I know in my experience this oneness with the Lord, that living God, do I know Him? Do I know His love? Now all that Jesus talks about of that state of being, to be beloved of God. But it has to be a life that's holy and Lord's. So ask yourself, what is my life? Can I say I become conformed to the image of Jesus? His heart is my heart. His commitments are my commitments. His values are my values. His priorities are my priorities. His loves are my loves. His concerns are my concerns. His passions are my passions. His commitment to the will of God and the glory of God and the kingdom of God and the gospel, the salvation of men, His love for people. Is that me? Am I like that? What am I living for? Or is my heart in the world? These sober questions, we, we need to be honest with ourselves. It's so easy to deceive ourselves. And that's where, you know, we looked at the preaching of John the Baptist when the Pharisees came to him. He said, why are you coming to me? Who told you to come here to hear this preaching? He says, I know your heart. And he warned them, don't deceive yourself. Don't say to yourself, he said. We have Abraham for our father. Don't be deceived by false teaching. And we have that tendency to deceive ourselves. And I would just exhort you because of the enormity of the issues involved, there's eternity coming. Your time on this earth is limited. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. We're going out of this human realm of human history. We're going into eternity. Where are you going to be? Heaven or hell? Because it's one or the other. And the answer to that is by, you know, the response that I have made to the truth of God and this gospel and what it means to truly be a follower of Christ. As Paul exhorted the Corinthians, make your calling and election sure. Praise God we know. If you truly know the Lord, the witness of the Spirit is in your heart. You know. You know your life. 
yeah, I'm not perfect, but yeah, this is what I am. This is what I want. This is way, this is basically how I'm living. There's a change that's coming in my life. I mean, how do you, how are you raised from the dead and not know that? <laughs> Let us examine ourselves to make sure that we truly know the Lord. Because the glory of that, if you know the Lord, you can't even plumb the depths of it. It is so amazing. But the terror of not knowing Him and what awaits those who do not obey the gospel, well, it should make us tremble. Let's pray. Father, we do come and we bow before You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for the one who is living truth, who by his power sets us free because that written truth directs us to him. Thank you for the Son of God, Jesus, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the one mediator between God and man, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Rescuer, our Redeemer. Father, we thank you for all that the baptism of Jesus represents of one who has identified with us in our sin and who has saved, who has been raised from the dead, who has accomplished this work and who was able to give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, and to raise us from the dead into newness of life. Lord, make it real in our lives. Pray for each one of us, Lord, that the work of your Spirit would be accomplished, that you would search our hearts and that we'd search our hearts and deal with you and make certain that we know you. We praise you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.